0: This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. So it's been a couple of months, Paul, since we checked last... uh, or checked last in check we last checked in let's try that again (laughs) let's try it again it's only wednesday it's
1: only wednesday
0: we last checked in with dr william hazeltine he is chairman and president of access health international it's a nonprofit think tank it's on a mission to improve access to high quality and affordable health care for people everywhere he's also a very well-known name when it comes to biotech of course founding a dozen biotech companies including human genome sciences he has put out several living ebooks living because they're constantly updated on how we are living with covid and figuring out our way back he's also got an autobiography my lifelong fight against disease from polio and aids to covid19 quite a trip he joins us on the phone from connecticut dr hazeltine it is so nice to have you back with us um how are you
2: i'm very well uh very happy here uh in Connecticut, I, uh, during the summer, I uh, purchased an old farm and uh, I'm busy uh, sort of fixing it up. It's a lot of work, an old farm, I can tell you.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, being a farmer is not, no easy business. Um, so, Dr. Hazel, team, let's just start with the numbers. They're not going in the right direction. Uh, I guess we can say we sh- we're expecting this, some type of second wave. What are, what are you seeing in the numbers as it relates to new cases and so on?
2: Well, let's take a, a global look. Uh, if we look at Europe, we see very sharp uh, spikes uh, in European, leading European countries, uh, Italy, France, uh, Spain, UK. The numbers are up from the peak, the very, very peak of uh, the spring. They're now back up uh, three to five times higher than they were. Think about that, three to five times higher than they were when we saw those dreadful scenes from Italy originally and then other places. Uh, North and South America, with the Canadian exception, uh, but Canada is beginning to uh, show uh, signs of uh, distress, are really bad, um, both North and South America. India is in dreadful shape. There's only one part of the world, actually, maybe two that are uh, doing well. For some reason that people don't understand and I'm beginning to look at uh, Sub-Sahara Africa. And then of course China. China and Southeast Asia uh, are in great shape but especially China which has had 650 million people travel over Golden Week and nobody got infected.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: I have offices in Shanghai and Beijing and everybody's going about their business, their economy is growing. They have the highest exports and imports that they've ever had. Um, That global picture gives you two pieces of information. One, this epidemic can be controlled through public health measures. Follow the book and you can be China. It isn't totalitarian. It's following the book, the guidebook. And there are many such books, if you ask me the names of them. Uh, There are many such books which will tell you how to control a pandemic. You need good leadership, which is clear, credible, and consistent. You need good governance and the public health institutions to uh, guide you. And you need a sense of solidarity in your population. They have it. The rest of the world seems to lack it, especially the United States, which despite 4% of the world's population is about – Uh, 20, 22% of the world's disease. We are punching way above our weight, but not where we want to be. Now, what everybody's concerned about is what's happening right now and in the next few months, and it looks grim. Because we're not doing what's necessary, because we don't have leadership, our governance processes are faulty, and our social solidarity never was really strong and is falling apart, we've got real problems ahead, serious problems.
0: Okay. Grim. So (laughs) Taking that in. Yeah. I mean, and it doesn't surprise me when you were going down the list of leadership, good governance, sense of solidarity, and I felt like there was some solidarity, certainly in New York Metro, when we were hitting some of those high numbers, but, you know, we're not hitting or firing on all cylinders when it comes to that list that you just put out there. So what does that mean? Do you think, let's take the United States, because that's where we are right now. What do you think that means for the next few months?
2: I think unless we change our course radically, we are going to see at least 100,000 people a day infected. We'll see our hospitals begin to overflow as we are now. They'll be totally overflowing. We might need surge capacities. We're going to have to start opening new graveyards. It's going to be very, very bad unless we change our course. Now, is it inevitable? It's not inevitable.
3: Right.
2: Uh, Right. We can carry out public health policies even now. Now that we know lots more about the disease, we can institute very rapid tests that are universally available, that are given frequently to almost everybody, and we can start a program of what I call compensated homestay so that people who are infected can stay home with their families. And I'm advocating paying them a lot to do that, $500 a day uh, for 14 days with their whole family. I think that's enough for people to identify themselves as positive. To have the public health authorities that are responsible for paying them. Right. uh, Be able to double check. And to keep people home as a family for 14 days. That's not too tough. And for those who can't, don't have a home, the homeless and people in uh, nursing homes, put them in hospitals and hotels and pay for it. And when you add up the cost, it's a lot less.
0: What do you make, though, Dr. Hazeltine, of... All the schools opening up. We had someone on yesterday who said, you know, kids are not super spreaders and that kind of making the case for opening up schools. What are your thoughts on that, especially with what you just told us in the last break about if we don't get things right, it's going to be pretty horrible the next few months?
2: Uh, It is, and I think we have to watch the situation carefully. There's a new report out that actually gives a very precise idea about who can transmit the virus to whom. That is, the Indian government carried out an enormous project where they did contact tracing. And then for each of the people who were contacted by somebody with COVID, they just looked to see whether they, in fact, were infected. And the results are very surprising uh, in one sense and very not surprising in another. At every age group they looked at, school age, the elementary school, the high school age, uh, above that college age, and then people in the workforce and older people of w- one age let's say 5 to 10 transmitted the virus most frequently to people of 5 to 10 hmm. people 15 to 20 transmitted the virus to people who were 15 and 20 hmm. and the rates of transmission were pretty much constant across all of that spectrum so children are not protected from giving the virus to one another and they can give the virus to the rest of their family that will then give it to other people. So that when we are looking at zones that are red, that means a high rate of infection, a high rate uh, of say, uh, 25 or more people per hundred thousand infected. And there are many States or even 50 or more uh, to put you in a red zone. There are many States in the U S that are now bright red. Uh, It's, and a serious question of whether you should send your kid back to school. Wow! If it was my child, I wouldn't do it in a red zone. And much more of the U.S. is turning red uh, rather than green. It's uh, not a good situation for children. And right, you've got so, to be very cognizant of what's happening.
1: So, Doctor, in your book, My Lifelong Fight Against Disease, from polio and AIDS to COVID-19, what are the commonalities between those three? And maybe what are some differences here?
2: I'd say the first commonality is when it first appeared, our senior leadership, our president and uh, senior administration, including our health uh, officials, refused to acknowledge it as a serious problem. They even wrote a book about me and Bob Redfield, a name you'll be familiar with. this epidemic. We're still around, we're still fighting diseases. Uh, but they wrote a book called "The Myth of Heterosexual AIDS," if you can imagine that a whole book attacking me and Bob Redfield called The Myth of Heterosexual AIDS. Some of our administration is trying to wish this away. Fortunately, our public health officials are not as they did. So that's one commonality. A second one uh, commonality is how the research, our very strong biomedical research, it got engaged right away and started working on it, trying to understand the disease and coming up with solutions. And for AIDS, it was a long time in coming, five, six years in coming, where combination chemotherapy has been able to uh, save and extend the lives so there are normal lifespans of those who are infected. We can see an enormous effort from the biomedical community. I think there's something like 60,000 papers now published uh, from the biomedical community around the world. That is really good news, but whether or not. It's going to be as effective as the drugs were in uh, saving people's lives it remains to be seen. It's an open question. The question on vaccines is, also remains open. We'll probably get a vaccine, which is sort of like the flu vaccine, yeah. partially effective, uh, partially safe, uh, somewhat, but it won't stop the, it won't stop the pandemic. I don't yeah. think, I don't think there's going to be a showstopper for this
0: vaccine. I have to say, every time you're on, we always feel like, man, we could just go another 60 minutes <laughs> easily. So I do hope you'll come back real soon, and and we'd love to talk a little bit more too about your book, Dr. William Hazeltine, Thank you so much. Always gracious with his time, Chairman and President of Access Health International. Check out his book. It's added as an ebook and a hardcover coming out in February. My lifelong fight against disease, from polio and AIDS to COVID 19. He has seen so much. This is Bloomberg Business Week. With Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Well, COVID plus decades of pollution are a nasty combination for Detroit, especially if your zip code happens to be 48217. It is one of the most polluted areas in Michigan, and this certainly is problematic when it comes to COVID-19. This story in the magazine this week, soon hit newsstands, also on the Bloomberg and online at Bloomberg.com. Cynthia Coons wrote it. She's U.S. healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News. She joins us on the phone in New Jersey. And Cynthia, Cynthia, you know, Paul and I were talking, it feels like there's never any kind of upbeat story coming out when, it, when when you're talking about Detroit. Tell us about Teresa Landrum and tell us about the zip code 48217. What's going on?
4: Yeah, thanks for having me, Carol. This sure. is a story about a very small part of Detroit. It's only a little more than two miles, but it's surrounded by more than two dozen industrial companies and polluting facilities that have been making the air, contributing to poor air quality in this one small section of Detroit and other parts of Detroit. Obviously, pollution doesn't know borders for years, decades. And Teresa actually has been fighting these companies for decades. She started her work in what's known as the environmental justice movement in the late 1990s. And that was back to when Detroit Salt was using explosives that were leaving cracks in people's houses and their driveways and their foundations. And that was her first environmental justice battle. But through the years, she's come up against any number of companies. She has dealt with permit applications. She has tried to stop these companies from increasing pollution. And of course, earlier this year, COVID comes to her community. And from what she could see, and from all the people she introduced me to, it had a pretty devastating effect in terms of people getting very sick when they got the virus.
1: So, Cynthia, this is a f- fantastic article, great reporting. And, and, you know, in this article is th- this map that you that you refer to is literally the zip code is surrounded by a dozen or more factories. I mean, it just they can't escape, it seems like. And so I wonder, you know, and that led obviously to the pollution issue that she's been fighting. How has COVID impacted this community?
4: The interesting thing is, not only does Teresa know a lot of people who've gotten COVID, but we all know there are a lot of reasons why someone might contract COVID. It could have to do with how much it was circulating in the community before there was a shutdown or jobs people do and so on and so forth. But what's interesting about the people she introduced me to is the severity of their cases. And so mm. when I would talk to people who live in forty-two and 7, they would talk about weeks of pneumonia or i talked to one woman who still was trying to catch her breast months after being discharged from the hospital and told me that to this day which is even months later than when i first spoke to her she still can't go on her five mile walk she can only walk about a half a mile because it impacted her so much from a respiratory point of view and so we started with the story of landrum's niece who is this woman Danielle hall who had spent an enormous amount of time both in the hospital as well as in nursing home learning how to walk again And just really use this to explore this idea that what we do understand is some research has come out, early research, showing that uh, exposure to pollutants does increase the number of deaths in a given area. That's been that's been that's starting to be shown in scientific research papers. But then the question is also could people's COVID cases actually be worse because their lungs are compromised by the time they get exposed to the virus?
0: There are so many. Like I'm shaking my head. I know you can't see it on radio, and you can't see it, um, mm-hmm. Cynthia. Paul can, because mm-hmm. we're yes. we're on Nexi and video conferencing. But like in your story, you talk about. Um, I guess it was in January. AK Steel filed an application requesting permission to triple the plant's lead and ma- manganese, excuse me, emissions. I guess what I can't get my head around is that I keep thinking we're in a world where we're trying to improve systems and prevent, you know, more impacts on our climate, and yet we know that that's not happening. Yeah, the environmental regulator
4: actually gave us the data and said that in the past decade, they approved 3586 applications and denied 18. And we asked for those numbers because a state representative who also had COVID, who also grew up, he lived the I-75, which is the big thoroughfare that a lot of the industrial like uh, trucks travel through and is through the community he also had said you know we go to these permit hearings we go to we we the people communicate that this is a problem for them people say that we can't kick on more pollution and these are these are companies that are across the street sometimes from playgrounds and schools and yet they still get approved and so the Amazing. question becomes how hard can it be and there really are um teams of lawyers who are trying to help these community members. But it's it's interesting. One of the conversations I have with Teresa, she said it's very, it's really challenging because the companies come in with, with reams of documents and experts using language that's very highly scientific that an average community member, you and I wouldn't know, we would have to get, we'd have to get up to speed on parts per trillion and things that are mm-hmm. just very much the, the lingo of that world, but it's very hard for community members to say, okay, wait a second, what you are actually saying here is this is going to spew more lead into the air across the street from where my child goes to school, which is what seems to have been happening. So but there's very interesting movement on the other side. So environmental justice lawyers filed a civil rights complaint earlier this year saying that, you know, this is systemic racism in action, that this is a community that's predominantly a minority community was there was an approval of a hazardous waste facility, a huge expansion. Mm. And the lawyers came out and said, no, this is a problem. And this is a civil rights issue. And people shouldn't have to breathe this air or deal with the effects of this pollution disproportionately.
0: Right. That's what they I was I was thinking, you know, and Paul, I'm, I'm listening, you know, to Cynthia, this whole idea of like, do we have a right to have clean air, fresh air mm-hmm. as a citizen of this country?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. And Cynthia, you know, it's there's a Ford plant right across the street, isn't there?
4: Yeah, so so wherever you look, the, that's a massive Ford complex, actually, wow. and it's actually now operating not quite like it used to be, right? It used to employ more than 100,000 people in its heyday, and I think it was like the 1930s, but now it's 7,500. It's, it's much smaller. I mean, obviously, a lot of this has turned to automation, but there, while certain plants maybe have downscaled and certain industry has moved away. There's other industry that's obviously remain like wastewater treatment and obviously hazardous waste facilities and power stations and cement plants. And you just don't really take into, until you stop and really think and look at this. You don't think about the totality of things that go into, say, making a car and how many parts might be made right nearby. And that's how you end up with these sort of clusters of industry. And, and once upon a time, this was, you know, a great place to live because there were jobs. Yeah. But now there aren't nearly as many jobs as there used to be, so that's not necessarily benefiting anyone either. But no one should have you know, their employment tied to, to breathing air that is substandard.
0: Hey, Cynthia, just quickly, 30 seconds here. Where's Congress or lawmakers on this? They've got to know about it. So Congress did actually bring in one of the
4: scientists I spoke to who did a study very early on showing that exposure to pollution had right. um, increased the, the death rate in certain communities. Um, and Cory Booker also had brought this. Um, scientist on into like a big town hall about this topic. So I think there this kind of you know, I think yeah. there is some movement. I think there are some people in Congress who really believe in this and really care. So there is a potential. The wheels are are turning. So yeah, there is a
0: possibility for change. Amazing. It's a must read. I'll put it out on Twitter. It'll be in the magazine this week as well. Cynthia Coons, you're the best US healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News. This is Bloomberg Business Week. With Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody. It's 12 days, and I was looking for my hourly count. I lost my clock. Oh, here it is. 12 hours, 12 days, (laughs) 9 hours, 57 minutes, 46 seconds uh, until the election. Uh, We kicked off the day, uh, Paul, today with some news from White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows saying on Fox that the goal in talks with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is a deal on coronavirus relief packages within the next 48 hours. So we'll see what happens. Uh, Someone who is uh, watching this very closely, Eric Wass, and he is congressional reporter at Bloomberg News. He's on the phone from Washington D.C. So, okay, here we are—less than two weeks away. Um, TikTok. I thought Nancy Pelosi had a deadline, Eric, for yesterday to get this done.
5: Yeah, that deadline obviously wasn't a very hard one. No. Uh, she had clarified <laughs> at some point along the way that it was just that she had to see people put their car- more of their cards on the table. Okay, it does sound like there has been some similar progress on things like the liability protection for companies. There could be a trade-off there, where if you strengthen workplace protections, then companies would be able to achieve some kind of legal defense uh, over their COVID uh, procedures. But on overall, big big issues like state and local aid. Uh, this is the Democratic push to, to get 500 billion dollars to state and local governments that lost revenue during the lockdowns. Uh, there's still some some issues going on. So uh, Meadows did put another 48-hour deadline on it. Today, uh, here in the Capitol, he came out of a lunch with a GOP and said two or three days. So that's like a little bit more little room there. Um, but, you know, we're seeing more and more of this possibility that they come to a deal, maybe even announce it before the election, give the president something to talk about uh, ahead of the election, and then actually do the vote after the election. So a lot of things are slipping mm. here, but uh, it does look like there, there may be a possibility of a deal if not. Uh, before the election, then, then into the lame duck session, which is c- when Congress comes back after uh, November 3rd. So, Eric, I have to admit
1: uh, the inner workings of Washington and billmaking often confuse me, but this one really confuses me. I think I've. You did I not. You're it,
0: obviously not a student of Schoolhouse Rock. Uh,
1: I, I, you know, I am. A, I remember it clearly, but it just doesn't <laughs> seem to happen that smoothly. Um, so, but So, Eric, we have a president who wants stimulus, we have the Democrats who want stimulus. Yet the Senate Republicans do not. Do I have that right? And if so, what do you think the strategy is of the Senate Republicans here?
5: I wouldn't say that they don't want stimulus. They have they put forward a bill today that they voted on, uh, five hundred billion dollars. You know, as Mitch McConnell points out, is, is you know wasn't chump change before this COVID uh, pandemic came about, uh, where we've seen three trillion dollars spent so far. Uh, but they just don't see the level, uh, the two trillion dollar level that the the White House and Pelosi are talking about uh, now. You just have different incentives. I think at this point, uh, there may be some sense among some Senate Republicans that Trump may be a goner anyhow, and uh, they're looking at what their uh, the Republican Party will be under a Biden administration, where they may reclaim the deficit hawk
0: mantle.
5: So I think we're seeing a lot of that those previously repressed deficit hawk uh, concerns mm-hmm. reemerging here. Uh, you know, Democrats would say, well, they're, they're going to just posture that way because they want to timey Biden, but, you know, the JGP will, if Trump loses, be looking for a new identity, and it may be the old identity of the Paul Ryan party, which was focused on the deficit.
0: Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about, because I was listening to Bloomberg Radio earlier this morning, and uh, Brown professor, political science professor, Wendy Schiller, just talking about Mitch McConnell and, you know, his lack of support for more stimulus is, is it that he's already looking to the next midterm elections and, you know, how they want to position The Republicans and maybe being able to say, hey, listen, we didn't support the wild stimulus spending that we maybe didn't really need. Is that is that what he's playing at right now?
5: I think so. They're always looking down the field. I mean, it's not just the midterm elections. You're looking at uh, primaries. You're also looking at a number of senators who are likely to to run for president again, whether it's uh, Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio or others uh, who want to establish that brand of being concerned about the deficit. Now, that being said, there are certainly vulnerable uh, Republican senators, certainly a handful like Cory Gardner in Colorado, Susan Collins in Maine, who very much would like to see a a big package voted on uh, before the election. They are are really clinging to life here as far as their political careers. Uh, So we see these maneuvers in the Senate, this sort of smaller bill brought up to give them uh, some sense that they're doing something and uh, talk of, of possibly a deal being announced. Now, if we get a deal and then they say they're going to vote on the Senate after the election, uh, that's going to be kind of interesting. We've been exploring with senators uh, today about that, and, you know, it really is up in the air because uh, a lot of times people say, well, after the lame duck, everyone will be politically unfettered. They'll be able to to make these difficult votes that otherwise would be uh, uh, you know, politically painful. But, uh, you know, to talk to a veteran like Roy Blunt of Missouri, he said, you know, I don't think so. I think it's now or never. Mm.
1: Eric, you mentioned some vulnerable um, senators um, and folks in Congress. I mean, what's the feeling in Washington about the Senate? Is there a real risk from the Republican perspective that it does, the power does shift to the Democrats?
5: I think so, yeah. I think that the Republicans are, are uh, uh, you know, McConnell keeps saying 50-50 proposition. I think it's more likely than not it does shift. Uh, there's a real scramble and everything can break a different way. But uh, I think one of the reasons we saw, a real, uh, you know, rush to do the Amy Coney Barrett nomination. Uh, We even had Lindsey Graham caught on the hot mic, I believe, uh, saying, you know, we're doing this because you guys could take over soon. So, you know, the the veterans around here see see that, uh, you know, Trump is in trouble, uh, you know, and unless the polls were as wrong as they were or even more wrong than they were in 2016, that's where this is going. So uh, there is a bit of a posturing going on there uh, as well on the Senate side.
0: Any more surprises that you think could potentially come out of uh, the halls, the hallowed halls of the Capitol uh, before the election? Just got about 45 seconds here, Eric.
5: Well, I mean, we're talking about the stimulus deal itself. I mean, if yeah. that gets announced, that could be a lifeline to President Trump from Nancy Pelosi, of all people. So whether that g- gives him a couple of points up, especially in crucial states uh, like North Carolina or Pennsylvania or Iowa or, or others like Georgia, where he's even uh, facing a tough race, uh, you know, that could be uh, a very interesting development, uh, and th- there could be a lot of finger-pointing if that ended up helping the
0: president. God, interesting times. Hey, Eric, thank you so much. Really appreciate the update and uh, clarity. Eric Wasson he's congressional reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone from uh, Washington, D.C. I'm driving in
1: my car. I turn on the radio. Hey, how
0: about you let me
4: drive?
1: Oh, no, 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 no.
4: Who's going to drive you home?
1: Well, the election is 13 days away and investors trying to get a sense of how do I play this? If a Biden wins, what does that mean for my portfolio? If President Trump wins, what does it mean? How do I play it? Our next guest says don't sweat it. Barry James, Portfolio Manager, James Investment Research. He joined us on the phone from Alpha, Ohio. Barry, thanks so much for joining us here. I kind of get a sense from your research that you're saying don't get too worried about elections. Think about your market. Think of longer term. Think about the structure of your portfolio.
3: That's exactly right. Um, you know, we we have a special report that we put out called Presidential Investing, Mining for Fool's Gold. <laughs>
5: uh,
3: it's available on our website, jamesfunds.com. But uh, the research that we did, uh, going back for years and years and years, find found that uh, you can't really tell what's going to happen. We had some folks... Uh, like Peter Thiel thought that with Obama things weren't going to go very well and of course we had a powerful bull market and then Mark Cuban in 2016 said Trump presidency stocks would plunge and bond market capsize and uh, it's done just the opposite about 12 percent annualized returns in in stocks and long-term bonds um, you know since he was inaugurated so um, it's really dangerous and a lot of uh, behavioral science has found the same thing people get too aggressive when their people are are in office and they get too conservative when they're not. Uh, But the market goes up. There have been eight Republicans and seven Democrats since 1926 and guess what? The market's gone up two out of every you know three years so um, don't sweat it is what I say. Just follow your plan.
0: Well okay, so there's presidential changeovers or there's you know a second term and then there's blue waves or red waves and I do wonder how that though could impact the investment climate, Barry?
3: Well, you're absolutely right. Um, we we saw uh, previously when we had a, a red wave, if, if you will, that it, it did have a, a boost, even when, uh, you know, President Clinton and the Republicans took over the House uh, and the Senate. Um, that was a positive thing, because he wasn't a big spender to begin with, and uh, positive things then took place. So uh, yes it, it 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 can work out really well uh, and uh, you know if we don't if we don't get crazy in some of our ideas um, then it should work the, the, the key, in, key key ingredient on money is that it's like water it follows the path of least resistance so the more barriers you put up the more it's going to go offshore again and we saw when you took those down we had trillions of dollars come back to the states
0: well okay when you say if we don't get crazy there's Maybe what you see as crazy and what others see as crazy. And there's, listen, it, you know, I hope we all come out of this um, past six or seven months a lot smart, smarter and wiser and that it's not just a focus on Wall Street like the White House seems to have, that we need to think of the bigger, broader pub- public. And, you know, we did, Paul and I did a story this week that if we took, you know, racism out of our society, you know, we're talking about a $16 trillion, I think it was, Paul, yep. or $13 yep. trillion, you know, Boost to you know the global economy or 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 our, you know so there's a cost by us not looking at the entire population. So, what kind of crazy popu- you know crazy policies are you focusing on or concerned about?
3: Uh, well, if we look at regulations, um, you know the reduction in regulations has meant uh, hundreds of billions of dollars in additional money into the working man's pocket. Uh, so that would be one thing if, uh, if, if things go you know uh, overboard in, in one direction in terms of regulations. And tax cuts, historically, I looked at all the tax cuts. We did the research on that. And the bottom line is the working man and woman, they see their, their wages accelerate at a faster pace. Uh, it's not to say that if taxes go up, they, they won't rise. But nevertheless, those tax cuts work that way. And the one dirty secret about that is revenues went up. We had the highest revenues ever f- from taxes with a tax cut. Uh, and that's because of economic growth. So uh, things that support economic growth, uh, support, uh, you know, the free markets are, are key ingredients to uh, having our economy continue to grow and be the best place to be in the world.
1: So where do you think, I mean, you know, there's been this push-pull between the folks that are just saying, I'm going to sit on my big tech stocks and they've been the growth drivers, <laughs> great top-line growth, and others that are saying, you know, I'm maybe I'm Prepared to look to the other side of this pandemic, economic growth, and I can find some real value in some of the cyclical names, some of the industrial names. How do you kind of fall out in that discussion?
3: Yes, um, there's about a forty percent difference in returns between value and growth this year. so you're right on. Uh, unfortunately, the value trap is just that right now. it's it's got uh, it's got no no momentum whatsoever. Um, I, I would say for the moment, stay on the yellow brick road, which has been what has been working. Um, you know the the tech area. There will be a time, especially if we see more of these uh, antitrust um, you know moves, um, where the big tech may may take a, a big pause. And it, it very well could be that some of the the new policies would really really be beneficial to small uh, to small companies. Um, and that's the area that's been totally ignored. And uh, maybe rightfully so up to this point, but uh, you know, come come a new uh, administration or whatever, it, it could be really positive in that area.
0: I mean, is stimulus necessary in your in your view, Barry? Is what I'm sorry? Stimulus, another round um, of virus stimulus?
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I talk to folks here uh, locally, and um, you know, the car's broken down, or uh, you know, something in the house is broken, and uh, you know, they don't. They don't have a job, and, you know, the jobless claims are reduced. Uh, so they, they need the money, uh, and I, I don't, you know, their businesses too, uh, obviously the hospitality uh, and, and the like, um, and the folks that I talk to in there are pretty desperate, um, you know, to, to try to stay alive and keep their, their folks being paid. So there's definitely a need for it, and, um, you know, whether it happens now or later, uh, I think something will happen.
1: All right, one quick name thirty seconds what's what are you looking at right now
3: well, I like uh, cadence design. they just uh, came out with earnings yesterday and they're spectacular. they beat the earnings they just raised their growth uh, uh, the growth numbers uh, they're really uh, doing quite well in china great margins, not a lot of competition uh, they're making the um, uh, the tools and software that uh, under you know undergird the um, um, the semiconductor industry uh, mm-hmm. so um, they're a money making machine right now <laughs> and uh, I think that's likely to continue yes they're up but uh, don't let that uh, don't let that dissuade you you can only buy the top ones as I've been told many
0: times <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're up about sixty percent this year so they've definitely been quite a run. Um, good to get some time with you, Barry. Thank you so much. Barry James, Portfolio Manager at the Ohio-based James Investment Research on the phone from Alpha, Ohio. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.